Hello, and welcome to the Poplar PropCast. I'm your host, Justin Limbernet. In reference to the title of today's episode, this is not how to steal a house. This is not a how-to podcast on how to steal a house. This is more of an exposure of the different ways which houses can be stolen. This is an awareness piece. It's a very clever title, and I will take full credit for that. But we are actually going to be talking about how house theft does occur, the stealing of a whole house, the stealing of parts of land, the stealing of parts of houses even. It's surprisingly, though it's not common, when it does happen, it can get pretty big. Um, the scope of the problem is not really known because it's one of those things that happens local, gets solved in a civil case, and then it's done. If you ask a homeowner or a landlord, they will refer sometimes to eviction as being a thief of property. And there's something to that. If somebody's not paying rent and has just decided to screw it, I'm not going to pay rent, I'm going to wait out the eviction process, it does feel like a theft. The house that I owned and rented um, before I sold it, I did have one tenant who went who had occasional issues paying rent, and I'd give them some leeway and then come back up with it. But then at the end, they didn't pay rent for almost three months. And after they didn't pay rent, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to get it. And then at the end of the first couple of weeks, I started going through the eviction process. And I eventually just did cash for keys to get them out of there. And that's when you, you, you're like, here's, here's a thousand bucks, go away. This is, I'm losing so much money on this. It's going to cost me more if I keep trying to fix it. So that, you will hear that kind of discussion, but what I'm talking about today more is actually and truly stealing a house through different mechanisms. There are some ways that are kind of, well, there, there's some ways that there, this is, there's a reason for this. And there's common law that most of American law is based on. English common law has kind of two things that gear this up. They want the property to be put to a use and they want to be able to collect property taxes from the property. So there is an adverse possession law, sometimes called squatter's rights, and it does this. And the reason it's there is because of somebody's abandoned property, which doesn't feel like a thing that would happen anymore, but was more common. You can have rules and laws built up in a way that says, okay, if you're able to execute X, Y, and Z way, the property is now yours. And there's different squatters laws. They value very state by state. Um, normally what happens is if you go find a piece of property that nobody's doing anything with and you occupy the property, and this is a quote, by open, notorious, hostile, continuous, and exclusive possession for a certain amount of time, and pay taxes for that, you get the property. And it varies in amount of time. California has the shortest adverse possession time of just five years. Texas requires 30 years. What this means is if you find an abandoned house and you move into it and you pay taxes on it and anybody that comes by doesn't try to kick you out, then at the end of that time, if you can prove you pay taxes and prove you did all this stuff, you can, you can definitely have that property. There are usually court things associated with it at the end. Um, there was a, a adverse possession court case that went to this California Supreme Court. This guy, Thomas Stevens, argued that he adversely occupied for 15 years the San Francisco apartment building on Oak Street in the Haight-Ashbury district. When Stevens sued the legal owner in a quiet little lawsuit, in a quiet title lawsuit, 
I didn't mean quiet little. It was a significant thing. Quiet title is what they call the lawsuit to declare the end of the adverse possession. So Stephen sued the legal owner in a quiet title lawsuit. He proved open, notorious, hostile, exclusive, and continuous possession. But the Supreme Court ruled Stevens he was unable to prove he paid the property taxes. So he lost, and the owner got to keep it. You can also just steal part of a property with what's called a prescriptive easement. So this is things like a driveway, a path, or a garden. The same adverse possession, open, notorious, hostile, time, and continuous use requirements apply, but you don't have to pay property taxes, and the use need not be exclusive. It can be shared. So if you drive across your neighbor's property and he tells you to stop, you normally keep driving over his land, if you continue doing so without interruption for the minimum time, you eventually acquire rights to prescriptive easement. However, if your neighbor blocks you with a fence, which you tear down, your prescriptive period starts running again. That's the hostile part. If you're the owner of a property that's being used by a neighbor without your permission, it's to your advantage to prevent him from acquiring a permanent easement. So the way you do that is to grant permissive use. This removes the hostility, which is really strange, right? So you have to hostily occupy the property. And then to stop you, your neighbor can kind of go, Oh yeah, you can you can totally do that. Feel free to drive across that part of my property to get to your house. And it's recommended that you should document your permission. Certified letters are a good way to do that. An interesting case of this is in Stanford, um, in Palo Alto, right? So um, there's a street in Stanford that they block off every summer for a few hours to prevent anyone from acquiring a permanent prescriptive easement to use that Stanford-owned street. So basically, they're resetting the clock every year by not allowing continuous use, which is really interesting. So permissive use prevents that theft for an easement, which is really interesting, and I think that's pretty cool. The other way that you can kind of do this and really find a spot to do it, and it's kind of common or more common anyway, is if you know of somebody that's passed that had several investment properties and one of them was vacant or they had a vacation house they never used, um, say if somebody's elderly and can no longer go to their vacation home, they go into hospice, you move into their vacation home and if you can stay there long enough, you can have it. It's really difficult. This is in no way advocating that you should do this. I'm just saying it's possible. There's a bunch of hoops to jump through. The reason I want to talk about it, though, is because there are other ways to do this that are a little bit more, well, overtly criminal, actually. So title fraud is usually connected to identity theft. It's a case in which the criminals in this case, absolute criminals, will find a way to impersonate you and sign a transfer of title from you to them. They'll then use that transfer of title to get another mortgage or lean on the home, take the cash, and then they have the cash, they'll move it into crypto or overseas, whatever. But since they've taken that mortgage out, your house is now encumbered by a further lien. And you're going to have to incur legal costs to sort this stuff out. This is one of the reasons that title insurance is so useful in transfer of properties to make sure there's none of these adverse hits on it. Unfortunately, there's not a running title insurance for when you have, well, there, there may be, I'm not aware of a title insurance for while you're occupying the property. But there are cases of this being done systematically by criminals. 
Um, there was a big one in Toronto where they were talking about it and it happened back in like 2021, 2022. So during COVID, this was occurring. Um, there was a family whose great uncle that his home was sold and his whole family didn't know. And that was one of many cases where they went in and started looking at it and they found out that there were almost 30 homes in the greater Toronto area that were sold or mortgaged without the real owner's knowledge. So there was a private investigation that was working for a title insurance company trying to figure out what's happened because it was costing the insurance so much in claims. So there's four or five loosely organized groups they identified in greater Toronto area. And out of those, there are about 26 that they've tied back to this, these groups. And the scheme works like this. An organized crime group will look through publicly available property records, find a home without a mortgage or a small mortgage where there's tons of equity in the property as a target. From there, the groups who receive the fraudulent funds use stolen IDs and hire stand-ins to pose as tenants to gain access to the home and other stand-ins to impersonate homeowners to mortgage or sell it. And a lot of times those guys are just paid a couple of grand to pose as the homeowners and the people behind the fraud don't want to be front-facing. They're hiring in-between and say, Here, here's what you're going to do. Go do this. <clears throat> those stand-ins they're being shared between crime groups and they'll just kind of go, yeah, you, you, you be this owner, you be this owner. After that sale, the mortgage or after that, the mortgage sale happens super quick. And for the sales, the fake homeowners often accept the first reasonable offer they get. They go, cool. Yep. Let's do it. So the money's moved out of fraudulent bank accounts really, really quickly and gets changed into crypto or into gold and shipped overseas. It's a challenge because the organized crimes groups have several properties on the go at once across multiple jurisdictions and across multiple countries and are using different ways to shield themselves, which is just so bizarre. I, it's one of those things, <laughs> you, you think about how secure we think our systems are. We think about how safe, it's a house. How do you steal a house? But the representative representation of ownership of that house is on file in the recorder's office and it's just signatures and notaries that move it around. If there's no mortgage attached to the house, it can be quite easy to change title, to change deed into somebody else's name, which is phenomenally surprising. Uh, I didn't realize this until my, my grandmother was in hospice care and while she was in hospice care, my dad had power of attorney, so he was changing stuff, and he was able to just walk in and sign a piece of paper and change the ownership on the property, which was, that's crazy. That's, it's, it's so easy to do, which is good. I mean, I understand why it's easy, but it's also, it's really strange that there's not more of a verification, cooling off process, anything to kind of give it time to check and see what's happening. So, so those are two of the kind of ways to steal, right? So one is fully fraudulently, one is uh, squatters rights. And then the other one that I want to talk about, and this is something I'd never heard of before, but it popped up in a life hacker article today. And it's been in a couple of movies. And once, once I read about it, I went, Oh, Oh yeah, I have heard of that. And it's called frogging. It's P H R O G G I N G. And frogging is the act of living in another person's home without their knowledge or permission. They're not really sure how it got the name. There was a movie where somebody was frogging called I See You, and they were wearing a frog mask. They think it might be called frogging because they frog. They jump around to hide. But it can happen. And one of the ones that I found just fascinating was a 
case at Ohio State University. So there's this, this guy, uh, Jared, and nine other people, and they live in an off-campus house. They got this group together. They rent a house. There's nine people. There's a bunch of bedrooms, so they're all kind of scattered around the house. And the house was weird. The They kept finding things that were strange. They'd wake up, and a bunch of cupboards in the kitchen were open. Um, they'd uh, A fuse would blow, and they'd have to go into the basement to flip the breaker, and they'd hear things down there. So they realized at one point that there was a door in the basement that was always locked. And they kind of wrote it off because it's a door in the basement. Maybe the guy that owns the house has some stuff in there. But it's just there, right? So it's just kind of, okay, whatever. There's, there's something in there. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's, it's a utility thing. I don't know. And you ignore it because it's in the basement. You don't need it. And then one day they're walking through the house... And they see a guy. And there's this guy in the house that's not one of the roommates. And like, hey, who are you? And this guy just kind of mumbles and leaves the house. And that's weird, right? To just have somebody random in the house. Um, then people said that they saw him around the house, saw somebody around the house after that, like out in the yard or nearby. And what they eventually figured out was... That closet, that door, is actually about 10 by 10. It was furnished with a mattress and a chair and a bunch of this guy's belongings, even a guitar. And he was living in there and sneaking in and out of the house and totally squatting in a part of their house. So he was he was just being there, which is so strange to think that somebody could be in your house. So that one is interesting because it is a full-on room that he was using. Um, there are cases that are super bizarre. There was a case in 1986. This is before it was called frogging. This was just weird. There was a 17-year-old kid who was obsessed with another kid, and he managed to sneak into their home and found a hiding place in a wall cavity next to the bathroom. He started messing with the family by making noises, drinking milk, and changing TV channels. And then he took the family hostage with a hatchet. The family escaped. The dude was nuts. But after I heard about this term and I started thinking about it, I think of all the additional spaces there are in some people's properties that you may never check. You may never think to look into, especially if you have something like a, a, a guest house or a barn out on the edge of your property. And just the idea that either transient or strange people could just decide to try and be like, yeah, that's why I sleep every night. I found a way in and out why I'm undetected and I'm going to be there. It'd be very strange to hear snoring coming from the attic. It'd be very strange to hear rustling. I wonder if some stories of hauntings were actually people just living in the walls of people's houses or living in the attics. It's a very strange piece. There's There's incidental types of this where people will break in and crash for a night or two or they'll break in because they need somewhere to escape adverse weather real quick but this this whole idea of beyond just needing a moment of shelter but but planning and executing on living in the walls attic or spare room in the basement of somebody's house is really a very strange space to be so this one's that's less house stealing that's kind of that's taking part of a house, right? That's just take a little piece of a house. 
And the last one I want to run into or discuss is one that I've run into myself, and that's where we've had once fraud in rental homes became a more a subject more people were aware of. When I was at AMH, we had a couple of people that would pick a house, tour it, claim that they had been had it leased to them, but they didn't really provide the criminals information. And then they'd force us to go through the eviction process. And there depends on the state. Some states you just go, you you don't have a lease, get out. But some places would make you go through the eviction process. So they'd get 30 to 90 days of residency. And during COVID with the eviction moratoriums, that became even more difficult. So you could actually go in, steal, take the key and just go, no, I'm living here now and fully squat. And it was very difficult to take care of that stuff. Um, during COVID, we found ways, but it was it was super challenging because it really is an adverse possession that is fairly supported by the courts and legislation. But these edge cases where people are abusing it are really interesting because it is stealing a house. It's more like stealing a car and joyriding and then getting caught than it is stealing a car, driving it to Mexico and selling it. That's kind of the title deed guys are stealing the car and selling it in another country, where the guys that are Forcing us to go through the eviction process or waiting out the eviction moratorium, that's more like uh, joyriding in a car and then dumping it. But through all of these, and I'm going to wrap up now. This is a shorter episode, just a fun one. Um, In all of these, though, the best way to keep somebody from stealing your house is to have somebody in it, to have it rented. And if you need help renting your properties, you can reach us to here at Poplar Homes at poplar.homes slash pod. That's poplar.homes slash P-O-D. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Keep your house safe. Bye.